Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Is it okay for your lawyer to go against your wishes if he thinks he knows better than you? That's a situation the Supreme Court is weighing in a case about a death row inmate who says his lawyer conceded his guilt to three murders against his wishes. DC reporter Chuck Stanley will join us a little later in the show to talk about the oral arguments in the case. And later on, we'll end the show talking about a legal situation facing a star of one of my favorite reality TV shows. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. What do we want to talk about today, guys? Well, Bill, I can't even believe you're you're able to sit here and contain yourself. The Eagles, my man. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah? NFC Championship game this weekend should be good. Yeah? How do you feel? Well, I mean, it's the matchup that we all saw coming, right? This uh, The Case Keenum-Nick Foles game. Hell yeah. Um, it's uh, certainly fun, sort of like if you had to write a movie where you had to come up with fake quarterback <laughs> names. Um, yes. No, I mean, I feel good. I sort of have the same, like... Uh, do you have like a fatalist? Are, 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 like, are you like a little fatalistic like I used to be with the Cubs? Or, no, yeah. Like, no yeah. one from Philadelphia has ever had that. that uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, mean, I got to say, I'm a Bears fan, so my football rooting interests subsided uh, like around around October. So uh, mm-hmm. so I'm, of course, rooting against the division rival. I, I was going to say, yeah. I'll be root. squarely pulling for the Eagles. Plus, the Eagles Sunday. are nice, fun underdogs. Come on. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm rooting for it. It should be fun. Guys, this conversation Amber, hey. ensures... <laughs> two, Amber, two, what are you doing? Two things. <laughs> One, I have nothing to contribute to a conversation about sports. Yeah. Two, this will make my husband like this podcast more. To be clear, I brought up almost unsolicited Downton Abbey last week. Yeah, we so had, we, really just balancing things you know, out. We spray to a lot of fields. But all that really did for me is make me realize I also haven't watched Downton Abbey, and maybe I should. So I'm just out two yeah, weeks in a row. I've got nothing to contribute. We're really striking out with Amber. I'm sorry. Next week, I didn't I'll prepare have to talk my, about something. I didn't, I didn't prepare a Nick Foles impression this week. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. That's, 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 that's more in your court. But you could do. Uh, you could just do Maggie Smith again if you want. <laughs> fly, Eagles, fly. <laughs> can we just make that a recurring sure. character yeah. you do on the show? Great. I'm sure Great. we can reverse engineer a segment. <laughs> All right, well, let's get down to it. Yeah, let's do it. So the long-awaited uh, sort of inevitable fight over net neutrality kicked off this week in the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a bunch of lawsuits filed this week. Um, it's sort of a familiar turn of events if you've been following net neutrality over these last uh, sort of five years. I think we are due for a soft reset here. We, we, we've discussed it on the show before, but we can use a, a sort of a, a primer on what the issue is with net neutrality and how we got here. So. Yeah. So net neutrality refers to the concept that internet service providers, companies like Comcast, your, your cable provider, have to treat the traffic that goes through their pipes equally, no matter where it comes from. So mm-hmm. the fear is that like those Comcasts and Verizons of the world, um, which for many people are the only sort of provider they have for for to getting getting on the internet, um, will start charging sites like like Facebook for you know better access to you to mm-hmm. their subscribers. Uh, the risks there are are sort of twofold. One that that then they become this gatekeeper that chooses what yeah. websites can really get to you, which is a scary proposition. And two, that that it would entrench these big sites that can that can afford to pay for them. Like they're going to bemoan it, but they're going to pay it. Mm-hmm. And a then little... the, and then the next Facebook can't exactly. even exist. Exactly. Anymore. The next Netflix would never right. exist because the amount of bandwidth they would need that they would have to pay, then pay these yeah. additional fees for to compete with somebody like Netflix. Mm-hmm. So it, it's sort of a, a scary thing that that a lot of people have been warning about, and the FCC has been wrangling over the past, let's call it a decade, yeah. to figure out whether and how there should be rules for 
ensuring net neutrality. And there was some um, rulemaking that, that was a run-up to this. Right? So in yeah. 2015, after years of court battles and failed attempts, the Obama-era FCC put these really strong rules in place that, that for legal purposes, treat ISPs like Comcast as a utility you know mm-hmm. that, that you can like that, the telephone company correct that can be tightly regulated they don't regulate them as tightly as something like a gas company or a telephone company but they legally identify them as such to give themselves more authority to impose these kind of rules those rules were upheld in court after the FCC put them into place but now we're in the Trump era and the and is the story of the Trump era across the board they decided to roll back what Obama's you know FCC had done Correct. The FCC said that these, the FCC Republican majority said that these rules were heavy handed, that they would stifle investment, a long time criticism of these rules from, from the Republican Party, and now have, have uh, withdrawn these, these rules, have rolled them back. Well, the reason we're talking about it on the show this week is that now we find ourselves in court. What's been going on with that? That's right. And as I said up top, that that's sort of a familiar, you know, way that these net neutrality cases have gone. Mm-hmm. The FCC has been trying to put these rules in place for a long time, and each time they've done it, they've been challenged in court to to the extent that that you know the, the last time they did this, and the reason why there are now these these what we are calling heavy handed regulations is because Verizon challenged it the last time, and and the FCC lost in court, and the court said they had to use this stronger set of rules. What makes this interesting, though, is that it's. It's all those cases where people trying to strike down something the FCC yep. had done, a, a new affirmative rule. The difference here is that these are a bunch of people saying that you you didn't have the authority to roll back rules. So it's it's a very sort of weird posture given all the cases we've seen over the years with with net neutrality. Definitely a change in dynamics. Who who brought these suits anyway? What are they saying? Yeah. So one of the cases was filed by um, more than twenty state attorneys general mm-hmm. who say that basically that the FCC's rollback violated the way that you're supposed to make rules as a federal agency. That it that it was arbitrary and capricious. That it they abused their discretion. Yeah. That um, you know that they, that they needed to take a more reasoned approach to to how they were rolling this back. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, and there were others too, right? Yeah. So another was filed by Mozilla. You probably know them better as the company behind Firefox, yeah. the the web browser. Um, they're a nonprofit company that uh, they argued that that these rules would sort of, as we were saying, that they would hurt small web companies that right. that, that didn't have the the ability to pay for for better access to get on the internet. Other suits were filed by public interest groups, um, public knowledge, the Open Technology Institute, Free Press. Um, so there's a bunch of these cases that have been that have been filed this week. So we've seen in the past that uh, it was big heavy hitter companies that wanted to um, strike down net neutrality. Yeah. So it was like Verizon and stuff like that. They had a lot of money behind them. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen with these that seem to be filed by smaller or more public interest type groups? Well, it's an interesting question because the big guys didn't file these suits, right? But they are behind it. So the Internet Association, which is the lobbying arm for Silicon Valley, yeah. they've said they issued a public statement uh, a few weeks ago that said when these lawsuits are filed, because it was sort of inevitable that it was going to happen, they said they're going to intervene in the case and you know take part in the case. So... Google, Facebook, Amazon, all represented by this internet association. So they will be behind this effort. So it's, you know, no one's worried about this this effort not having um, deep pockets to, to challenge this rollback. So the other thing we've talked about with net neutrality, we had Kelsey Griffiths on the show a few weeks ago when it was net neutrality was struck down, saying that Congress might step mm-hmm. in. 
And have we had any action on that since we last spoke about it? Yeah. So this week we saw um, forty-nine, uh, all forty-nine Senate Democrats uh, pledge support for a bill that would that would reverse what the FCC did in rolling this back. The real, the interesting wrinkle this week is that Susan Collins, um, a very centrist Republican out of Maine, mm-hmm. said this week that she would also pledge support for that kind uh-huh. of bill. So it puts them at fifty, which, we, as we all know, we've all become civics experts in the last <laughs> right. year. Um, Mike Pence would break that tie, so they need fifty-one. Again, this would never pass the House. It has to be signed by Trump. He would immediately veto it. So it's not really interesting from the perspective of like, this is going to happen. It's more interesting from like getting people on the record for this issue that that Democrats think is going to be a big sort of wedge issue for for young people going forward. So that's another sort of interesting one to watch. But... But the courts are really where it seems like the, the real action is going to take place. All right. We'll keep our eyes on that one. Those are definitely going to be some interesting cases to watch, Bill. And I got some more interesting cases for us to watch. They're taking place at the high court. And you know what that means. Oh, no. Do we have You know another? what that means. Sir Grant Corner. It's time for the glorious return so, of so, Sir, so, 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 Sir Grant Corner. I have been waiting for this moment, guys. Come with me. To CGC, <laughs> it's a world of high stakes litigation. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, awesome! What do we have in circuit? So, off. so last Friday saw a bunch of interesting cases uh, get taken up to the high court. We're going to walk through a few of them. Uh, just give you the just give you the highlights here. The first one, I'm going to pull the room really quick. How many of you have ever purchased something on the internet? What's the internet? Just this week. This is bad radio. Everybody's well. Bill's pretending that he doesn't know, but uh, everybody's basically done this. And if uh, a decision goes a certain way in the Supreme Court, that might get a lot tougher for you. The state of South Dakota is taking aim at a 25-year-old high court precedent that has uh, essentially barred states from requiring retailers to collect sales tax um, if the companies do not have a physical presence within that state. Mm -hmm. Basically, they have said... You know, if if you're not within the boundaries of this state, you don't have to collect sales tax. So what's the what's how's this like? How is this case doing that? How is this case taking on that 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 precedent? Best to look backward to go forward. Back in 1992, way back in the halcyon days of 1992, the court <laughs> the court handed down a, handed out a decision called Quill versus North Dakota, and it basically said that it's way too burdensome for states to demand sales taxes from companies that are not in those states. Mm-hmm. They're like, it takes a long time for these transactions to go through. It kind of stuff happened a lot less back then. It's on, yeah, it's on, like it's not, it's, it's unrealistic. And so it's, and you don't have to have those laws on the books. But as you may have noticed, quite a few things have changed since 1992 in regards to how we purchase goods and services. Um, and so the rise of the internet-only retailers like Amazon um, have basically fueled these calls for a change. And South Dakota has been a leading voice in that fight. They're basically taking this case that they brought against uh, online furniture sellers Wayfair and Overstock. Mm-hmm. And they're basically, it's, it's basically this case was started specifically to overturn this decision. And they are making the arguments that you would guess. Like I just said, it's a lot easier for uh you know, goods to be purchased over the internet. And it's sure. not, it's not that hard to chart, to ask people, you know, to first states to ask for a slice of the pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love another case where we have something where it's like, Hey, the laws and the cases that we have on the books haven't <laughs> kept up with technology. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, not, not to be prisoner of the moment, but it's been a you know crazy time for innovation and the law, you know, can sometimes lag behind. Um, Do we have a sense of what, like how this is going to go? Like I say, the writing seems to have been on the wall for a long time. Um, it, it sort of seems 
at the at, at the bare minimum, even if even if the court goes very narrowly, they will say there there needs to be a change. Sure. Even, even if it's not us, maybe Congress, you have to do something. Um, but the most telling thing that happened um, in a case in 2015 that dealt with e-commerce and gestured toward this issue but didn't tackle it, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote about this earlier decision, this this Quill decision, mm-hmm. and he wrote, "It is unwise to delay any longer a reconsideration of the court's holding in Quill, a case questionable even when decided." Quill now harms states to a degree far greater than could have been anticipated earlier. So we got one vote. Yeah, right. I mean, we know <laughs> we, we know how he's going. And there does seem to be, to the extent that that exists anymore these days, a growing consensus that, you know, the business climate is different now. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Keep an eye on it. What else is hanging around Sir Grand Corner? Next on Sir Grand Corner, uh, how many people in the room are patent attorneys? Nobody. Nobody. Okay. But we all care a lot about patents. This one, yeah, this one doesn't have as, as quite a wide an application, but it is, uh, we don't talk about patent litigation that much on the show because it treads into some kind of thorny and technical stuff that doesn't make for the greatest podcast content, but make no mistake about it. it it's is, a big deal. It is our biggest wire here at Law 360 by a long shot, and it regularly involves judgments that climb into millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of money. Every tech company you ever heard of has probably been involved in some kind of patent case, and uh, in light of a case that was taken up on Friday by the justices, the stakes could get even higher and those judgments could climb even higher because they are going to consider um, an expansion of U.S. patent law that would allow companies that win patent suits to collect damages from their rivals based on lost profits that occur outside the United States. So and it, it, I, I, ostensibly expanding the reach of U.S. patent sure. law. And that would be a big deal because U.S. patent law doesn't apply outside of the US. So right. this would be a real sea change for that. Yes. And I think it's it's instructive to talk about what's going on underneath here. Uh, the energy giant Schlumberger, um, which everybody has heard of who, who follows the energy industry, uh, won a $124 million judgment against a company called Geophysical Corp. Uh, it was a case involving patents to do with oil and gas exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of that judgment was the court recouping or, or uh, you know, granting uh, uh, a victory to Schlumberger based on profits that they lost because geophysical was using its its technology to conduct oil and gas exploration. And the, all that exploration was out in the high seas. Right. Yes. So it's outside the boundaries of the U.S. And the appeals court said, oh, that's actually not uh, how that's supposed to go. And you can't recoup it um, for that. Uh, you know, the, the, the law doesn't extend that way. Basically, what it comes down to is we all understand the basic parameters of patent law. It's mm-hmm. like, if, if you feel that someone is improperly using your idea and you can prove it, then they have to pay you. Very often, that payment involves profits that you lost. But if you can expand the pool of the lost profits, mm-hmm. you can see how this gets a lot more high stakes like, extremely quickly. Um, it's a huge deal. We were just talking in a different context about you know the expansion of the business climate and the most powerful companies in the world with some of the most sensitive technologies in the world are increasingly becoming having multinational presences and things like that. Um, so that is no, it, it's it's a little wonky the way I described it, but it has a huge deal for the patent. Bars, Wasn't that interesting you know? sort of comparing the two that we just talked about, right? That this idea that like the internet and that we, that we have like moved beyond <laughs> traditional boundaries that like, I know. that like it does, maybe, maybe that needs to expand to this point, you know, that, that so much of this stuff is happening overseas or happening beyond state borders that, mm-hmm. um, so it's just interesting to sort of tie those two together. I will be so excited to see how the court deals with this because it just can really change the game of the calculus of these patent lawsuits and 
how much people are worried that they could be on the hook yeah. for some of these infringement actions. Definitely. Uh, those are just two of the biggest ones. There were a whole bunch uh, of cases taken up by the justices on Friday. Definitely go check out the order sheet. I'm getting the wrap-up signed from the booth. I can't talk about any of this other stuff. So that is it for Sir Grant Corner this week. Sir Grant Corner! Sir Grant Corner! <laughs> Thanks, Alex. This week, the Supreme Court took on a straightforward question with life-or-death consequences. Can a lawyer admit to a client's guilt against the client's expressed wishes? One of our D.C. reporters, Chuck Stanley, was on hand for the oral arguments and is with us today to break down how the justices were leaning. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. So let's just get everybody set up here. What are the facts in this case? What was going on? Okay, so the petitioner in this case is a guy from Louisiana named Robert McCoy. He was accused of killing his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, and his stepson after a domestic dispute with his estranged wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he claims he was the victim of a multi-state conspiracy by a ring of drug-dealing police officers. So, uh, so we're already in trained- crazy territory here with, with a lot going on. So how did the lawyer get involved here? Right. So he eventually hires this lawyer named Larry English, who looks at the evidence and concludes there's no way McCoy is walking on this. What was the evidence? What Uh, did he see that that sort of swayed him that way? So the evidence against McCoy is substantial. Uh, The mother-in-law appears to have ID'd McCoy by his first name during a 911 call during the murder. His car was seen fleeing the scene. Prosecutors have statements from two people who helped him flee the state who say McCoy admitted to killing three people. Mm-hmm. And when McCoy was finally arrested in Idaho, riding in the cab of a semi-truck, the murder weapon was found behind his seat. Wow. This is the kind of stuff, if you were watching Law & Order, mm-hmm. you would be like, well, it's a slam dunk. This guy's definitely not going to get off of these charges. Right. And so what did uh, his lawyer, English, what did, what, what did he do looking at that evidence on balance? So... English decides the only way to avoid the death penalty in this case is to admit that McCoy committed the killings and essentially beg for leniency, Mm -hmm. saying that McCoy was incapable of of the sort of foresight that would would net a first-degree murder conviction and to show that he had a great deal of remorse about the killings, despite the fact that on the stand, McCoy continued to argue that he hadn't committed the killings. And he had told his attorney that he did not want to do this, right? That he wanted to stick with his innocence. And so what, what English did was against his, the, the interest of his, or the, the, the request of his client, right? Correct. He protested to his attorney. He protested uh, to the judge in the case saying he didn't want his attorney advancing this defense and even tried to have the attorney fired in the days before the trial. So that is the route that the uh, attorney decided to take. He decided to enter the guilty plea over McCoy's objection. How did that work out for McCoy? Well, they didn't enter a guilty plea. He was still he was still pleading not guilty. Okay, and that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Okay, because McCoy took the stand, told his story about this conspiracy, how he was being framed, and English basically tried to use this to show that McCoy maybe wasn't in control of all of his faculties, right. either now or during the trial or at the time of the murders. Um, well, how did the sentencing shake out? 
Uh, it did not work out in McCoy's favor. Okay. So despite English's efforts, McCoy gets sentenced to death. Wow, that's a big gamble that didn't pan out there. So this all gets taken up to the high court. McCoy uh, is very angry with how this turned out with his attorney going against his wishes. Um, what was McCoy arguing to the Supreme Court? So McCoy was essentially arguing that his Sixth Amendment rights were violated by his attorney uh, refusing to pursue the objective that he had that that he had said he wanted to advance in the trial, um, so you know professing his innocence, and that that English should have been barred from from admitting to an act that McCoy explicitly said that he didn't commit. So Louisiana is on the other side of this case because they were the state involved um, in the murder prosecution. What's their argument for why for why this isn't a, a good argument on appeal? So their argument is that English was acting correctly in his in his role as an attorney, trying to advance the best interests of his client, even in the in the face of a client who was difficult and was possibly incapable of assisting in his own defense. So the ethical thing and the right thing to do, Louisiana argues for English, was to make his best possible case to avoid the death penalty. It raises tough questions about where that line is, of what the attorney is allowed to do in their client's best interest when it comes Mm -hmm. to a case like this. Yeah, the facts of this case are, are, I mean, we've already laid them out and they're stark when you read them on paper. But I mean, this you could conceivably apply this case law to anything if you're you're talking about what a client wants versus what an attorney wants. Right. We talk all the time about white collar cases where somebody is... um, uh, up on charges of various things, and people may not want to admit to certain things where there's other fact patterns that could point toward their guilt. So how much does a lawyer have leeway to use their judgment and knowledge of the legal system in mm-hmm. what they think is the best interest of the client? It's really a question of how paternalistic can your lawyer be? <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. Chuck, so you were in the courtroom uh, this week for the arguments. What was that like? Sort of walk us through the you know, the the highlights of where the judges were sort of probing and, and, you know, what it sort of, how it looked like they were leaning. Right. So I think you guys nailed it right on the head as far as to what extent does an attorney have the leeway to, to take a defense strategy in a direction that the client may not want. Mm-hmm. Um, so both sides got some, some pretty tough questioning, I thought. Um, and McCoy's attorney... Uh, Seth Waxman uh, was first up and, you know, really faced a lot of questioning about the implication a ruling uh, in favor of McCoy would have as far as clients being able to dictate the strategy of their attorney. Yeah, right. Like, hey, who's, uh, a, who's, who's the lawyer here? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. And I think uh, Justice Breyer uh, said it pretty concisely that, you know, you, ha- you have essentially clients having a license to walk themselves right into jail because if you take this theory to kind of its furthest logical conclusion, the the attorney is basically just a, a proxy for somebody representing themselves. Sure. Mm-hmm. Their expertise can't really be brought to bear if their client can tell them to not do anything yeah. that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So what about right. for the and other side, Chuck? What What were some of the questions for the state of Louisiana? Well, I think the main question was uh, that that got repeated in a lot of different ways was, does a lawyer have free will to 
not only dictate the strategy of a case, but the objective. Right. It's becoming like a um, philosophy class, the question of free it is, will. But it <laughs> also, like, it just makes me think about all of the negative things people think about lawyers, yeah. that mm-hmm. it's sort of this this idea of, like, you hire this person and then they get to just run roughshod over your wishes. So there's sure. something to that, too, where people think lawyers are pushy enough already, and now yeah. they get to just dictate everything that happens in your strategy. No holds barred. Right. Right. Justice uh, Sotomayor said it was analogous to an ethics uh, exercise you might have in in a law class. So, Chuck, did you get any sense about what way they seem to be leaning or does it seem split right down the middle to you? You were there in court, so I always kind of like to take the temperature of how it felt in the room. You know, it's hard to say either way. Like I said, both sides got uh, some pretty tough questioning. I will say Seth Waxman, who's argued many times. Yeah, he's no lightweight. Mm hmm. Right. He seemed to do a very good job of articulating a a fairly narrowly tailored decision that that he's hoping to get out of this, uh, which was essentially that a lawyer can use any any tactics or strategy that they want, but it's unconstitutional for them to overtly admit that their client perpetrated an act that the client doesn't want to admit to. Right. So it keeps so he was basically saying that uh, English in this case didn't have to advance the conspiracy theory McCoy was uh, trying to press forward. He didn't have to push back on the prosecution's facts regarding the details of the murder if he felt like those weren't strong. But he was also prohibited from saying that McCoy was responsible for the murders. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what, what Waxman's kind of saying is, you know, it, we're we're not picking it at at the margins about like, you know, when to file certain briefs at a certain time or like how like the the aggressive wording of certain arguments. It's like a core. Did you do this thing or did you not? <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Check. This sounds like an interesting one to watch in person, and I can't wait to see how this turns out. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I've brought one I want to talk about today, guys. All right. Do you remember Michael Sorrentino? I don't remember that. That name doesn't. Yeah, that, that name doesn't, doesn't does strike me as something. Does it help you if I remind you of someone called the Situation? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Who can forget? Check okay. Out. Yes, of course. We're in Jersey Shore territory now, yeah, which is sure. why I want to talk about this one. So the Sitch was one of the self-proclaimed Guidos mm-hmm. of that show. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was on the MTV reality show um, in, from about 2009 to 2012. Sure. It was a big hit. We people wrote I can't a lot believe of that show lasted that long. By the way, it was great yeah. television. I watched every episode of that it's, show. It's on Hulu now. Ooh, oh, great. You know that. You could relive yeah. that. Might life. go back and pop anyway. that on tonight. <laughs> anyway, what's he? Yeah. I think it's great that the person who currently lives in Jersey and the person from Jersey both are like, yeah, watched all of that. <laughs> Love that show. <laughs> So what's he up to now? <laughs> so it's bad for the sitch. Um, the latest is that this week, Mike and his brother, Mark Sorrentino, both pled guilty to um, tax-related charges. Oh, so it ain't so. Well, here's the part I'm sad about. They pled guilty because there was a trial that was slated to start next month. I was hoping there'd be a whole trial Ooh, about this. Would have been cool. Shows, his, shows his abs mid mid. He calls Robbie and Sammy Sweetheart as character witnesses. Right. <laughs> they start fighting in the courtroom. They have yeah, to be right. removed by a bailiff. They have a lover's quarrel. In front of 
Snooky so, pukes. Yeah, right. <laughs> that definitely would happen. Yeah. <laughs> so he pled guilty with his brother. They'd been indicted on a whole bunch of stuff, guys. It yeah. was um, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., tax evasion, filing false tax returns, sometimes not filing tax returns. And it was all during this- Skipping leg day. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> and all of these charges were related to the period when he was on the show and making the most money. Oh, so yeah. The- Gym, tax evasion, laundry. That's what they used to say, <laughs> yeah, right? Totally yeah, GTL, baby. That's what they used to say? Yeah. So this all happened because they created some businesses. I guess reality stars probably do this a lot. Yeah. Where they have businesses. Well, you come into a lot there. of money, right? And then you probably give it to people like your dumbass brother who like <laughs> like start using it idea. in stupid ways. And yeah. so I really like the name of these businesses. Oh. Um, one is MPS Entertainment. Sure. His initials, obviously. Great. Sure. And the other one is Situation Nation. Oh yeah. Nice. That's my Sounds favorite. like an energy drink company. Definitely. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm starting is, an energy drink company that's, MMA brand. That's right on brand yeah, for him yeah. though. That's Perfect. So uh, failed to pay the taxes, and that's how this all happened, to the tune of he was making $9 million. So the tax bill was pretty hefty. Wait, you're saying that like in an ongoing sense? Like he he was making like per season $9 million? Uh, No, let me rephrase. Cumulative or whatever. It was cumulative. Okay. And it wasn't just paid out by the show. Otherwise, I'd rethink yeah, my career streams, track. Club uh, deals. Appearance fees. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it was. It was yeah. merch. It was uh, book deals. He was doing personal <laughs> appearances. <deal. laughs> hey, Snooki wrote two books, you I guys. Know. I'm I sure didn't, she did. I did not read them, but they were very successful. Sure. Um, yeah. So it was just the reality TV star stuff you would imagine, trying yeah. to extend your brand and stay relevant. The other, the other thing that the situation was famous for beyond this, I remember that he... I only remembered that he bombed at a Comedy Central roast, but I didn't remember who the roast was. Oh, who was it? I looked it up before I was preparing for the show. It was a roast of Donald Trump. No <laughs> way! I'm, I'm not lying. I was like, wow. Oh, that's perfect. That is like a classic 2011 story. Man, don't we pine for a simpler time when, when like, we watch the Jersey Shore? When like the like the the, the biggest <laughs> controversy of the day was like, are we perpetuating Italian American stereotypes like on the Jersey Shore? Those were the times. It was best when the Italian American stereotypes were on a show called The Jersey Shore and not Scaramucci in the White House. <laughs> right, right, right. right. To, to bring it all back around yeah, to the Oval. Yeah. Yeah, just right. a bunch okay. of spiky-haired, just <laughs> drunk kids wailing on their biceps, <laughs> having a good time. Yeah. Well, we'll see if he ends up in prison or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's a nice little, him. nice little button up. Well, I'm just thinking about like the lifestyle's not entirely different. I mean, he's still gonna work out a lot. Definitely gonna work like, out. You know, I mean, Probably it's less, not, less it's not tanning. That. Yeah, might be. have to work in the laundry room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is tasteless. That's good. That's good. Okay. <laughs> Let's, we, should, let's, we, should, we should probably let's, be done. Let's cut things. <laughs> yeah, let's let's end the show here. All thanks right. for being with me, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. The other people we'd like to thank today are our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Chuck Stanley, contributing reporters, Ryan Davis, Matthew Perlman, Kelsey Griffiths, Bill Wickert, and Maria Coquelinaris. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week. Sir Grant Corner.